Nick, I enjoyed that immensely. Very good, man. Hey, it's all about enjoying playing, right? That's why it's called playing music, because you're supposed to just enjoy it. I know as a musician, I like to play with other musicians that are enjoying the music. And you, my brother, are enjoying the music. Bravo, man. But I hear you, man. There's so many amazing guitar players out there that sometimes you wonder if you should even pick up the instrument. No, we play music because we like to hear that instrument. That's it. Big love, big respect. Oh, man, I cut that off way too early. Well, go check out Nick's station. Yesterday, he had um, some gamer voiceover artists that he was interviewing. And, uh, yeah, he's doing a lot over there. And he's also a fellow musician. Can't lose. Well, I'm looking forward to talking to Nick. I've got some questions. I want to shout back to some of my new anchor friends here. Kevin Touch, of course. I am radio. And it's worth repeating. Nick Diaz of Knots. The Daily Larb. And I'd be remiss to not shout back to my old friend. I also want to shout out to my old friend Bobby over at Lighthouse Reflections. And of course I didn't forget about you live on a planet. And of course a big shout out to Working Like a Woman, the Chad Sifu, and uh, Sifu Auto Naps. The very reason why I'm on this app. I mean, seriously, if it weren't for those three folks, there would be no Integrity Radio. So go over to their stations and make a request. Make them talk. They know, they know stuff. They know a lot of stuff, those guys. And uh, if I forgot to mention your name, call me up and give me some shit about it. I gotta admit, my, my memory ain't exactly what it used to be. Red Mono. Everybody loves Raven. That's a good question. That's a good question. That's a good question. That's a question. Connecting and engaging. That's all it is. Nothing, nothing, you know, new. It's just me being connecting and engaging and networking with people. I did this for 92 hours that week. I, I basically said, whatever it takes, get done, connect and engage. Dude, yeah, I, I, I love your remixes, man. Your remixes are incredible. Yeah, it's amazing. Man. It's, it's just the way we can engage, connect, it's incredible. That's the great thing about Anchor, too. It's, it doesn't matter where you are. You could be in a bed. You could be, you know, in the shower. Would you like them in a house? Would you like them with a mouse? See, so, so, so I had that natural ability, I think, where I could kind of communicate with people and kind of engage and connect.
Yeah, All right, guys. So make sure we're, we're going to dinners at uh, Integrity Radio. <laughs> we're so, going uh... to the Dice Dragon. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> the Deutsch Dragon boy. Oh boy. <laughs> Oh my god! I, I had that. I had that fire. Yo, Ray Romano, what did you? <laughs> oh. You want Ray Romano voice? You pay more. <laughs> <laughs> this conversation has gone off the Romano. If you know what, I mean. <laughs> what do you think? I'm all you can eat restaurant. That's all you can eat, Ray Romano. <laughs> I go to the Deutsche Dragon to pay an extra tip. <laughs> oh man, this is good. <laughs> Convolutions and extrapolations, indeed. Hi, everybody. Z here. I want to give my two cents on addiction. And really, I'm not quite sure if addiction is the right word. Let's use habit. Now, I have had many habits good chance I harbor a few habits right now. What I'm trying to say here is I'm no stranger to substance abuse. I think the most valuable lesson I've learned on this actually came from William S. Burroughs. And this is why I like to use the word habit. You see, in a lot of Burroughs' work, or at least what I have been able to extrapolate from it, he goes into great philosophical detail about addiction. And I think his main point is that anything can be a habit. Or rather, everything is a habit or an addiction. And this sort of coincides with the lesson I learned from Grandmaster Chris Chan regarding emotional control or emotional intelligence when we become off balance it's because we let our emotions get out of control and this could be a good emotion or a bad emotion or even a uh, non-emotion so it's not the abstinence or the denial or the suppression of an emotion or in this metaphor a substance but controlling that emotion or controlling that substance now don't get me wrong here most substances alcohol drugs and all that are poison so controlling poison is a matter of not putting it into your body but think about what we're being careful of here. We're being careful of the effects that these things are having predominantly on our brains. So we don't just need to control these drugs and whatnot that we put into our bodies, but we also need to control our brains from seeking those same effects from other things that aren't substances. I mean, there's more than one way to get a dopamine rush, right? So, getting back to Burroughs. I think really what he's saying is, don't blame it on the drugs. Don't blame it on the substance. Blame it on your brain's desire for dopamine. 
You know, Charles Bukowski says, find what you love and let it kill you. I, I, I'm going to refine that. Find what you love, find what loves you back, and go kick some ass. Integrity Radio. Engage and connect. Engage and connect. I love it, man. I'm saying engage and connect like a million times. And of course, we got the Chinese River model. Oh, man, that's great. That's great. Anyway, uh, great stuff, my man. Appreciate all the stuff. That I, I, It's funny because I remember a lot of this stuff. It's just funny. It's like engage, connect, network, engage, connect, network, rare model, rare model, rare model, Chinese, Chinese, Chinese. <laughs> Deutsch, the Dragon. Keep it up, bro. Love the, love the content. Shout out to you, Integrity Radio. Yeah, it's Lou from a Lou station. Check it out. Integrity Radio, we got to do a call. You got you you and Kevin Touch connected, and you're talking about this app being revolutionary, and it's like us figuring out the puzzle of the DNA. We have to connect. I'm already thinking on this wave. I've been thinking about this since I got the app. I need to connect with more people that are thinking like this. Please do me the honor of giving me 10 minutes of your time today, tomorrow, this week, or next. We can talk about Anchor, we can talk about music, and the struggles of being a starving artist on top of this amazing community on Anchor. Let me know. Nick Diaz of Knots Out. Hey Z, it's Bobby from Lighthouse Reflection. That was remarkable, thank you. Obtaining other perspectives and uh, molding into the community. Understanding the community, understanding the people. It's not going to be some slam down or anything, I'm just going to give my opinion. I think what Patrick was saying is that there's another person walking around England with the exact same story, but that other person doesn't have the punchline. I figured I should tell you why. If, if you haven't checked it out, I, I loved it, every bit of it. And the two of them ended up kind of, I don't know, giving each other a hug. But, uh, I think um, overall uh, it was interesting, and uh, <laughs> nice one for uh, for getting on that. All right, thanks, man. Talk to you. Hey, Integrity Radio. Uh, yeah, I really appreciate your call-ins, and I do really value our exchanges here too. I appreciate the. Uh, the emotional exercises as well. I was hoping to maybe ask you a couple of questions about them. Oh, that was sweet, man. I appreciate that. Hey, what's up? Thank you so much for the call-in. It's Brad with uh, DIY. It's, uh, it was it was really interesting to hear your perspective about just 
putting it out there in front of people because, you know, just trying to do everything myself, there's a lot that I don't think about sometimes. Hey, Integrity Radio, Timo here. I think that was just Buckminster Fuller, maybe, on that piece. That was cool. I dig it. That was cool. I dig it. You seem like you have some great insight. That was cool. I dig it. That was cool. I dig it. That was cool. I dig it. Hey, Stories of Life, this is Z. I agree. Authenticity is key. Uh, Some years ago, uh, it, it became clear to me that people were more interested in the copies than they were the originals. And so this actually has been sort of a trend, uh, an unfortunate trend. I think the main issue with the motivational speakers is that uh, they don't get the memo. They don't get the upgrade. They don't get the update. And then they refuse correction. They refuse self-correction. They refuse external correction. From day to day, life changes enough that you really have to stay on top. You still have to listen. If you know anything about neuroscience, you know that you have to expect deception from yourself and from everyone around you. And this is our starting point. So I love your skepticism, man. Full sails ahead. All right, come on, let's talk about it. About what? Motivational speakers. You already know my feelings on know, motivational we speakers. We got to talk about it. But, well, what is it that you said you didn't like about motivational speakers? Well, I said that. Well, in my experience, they have no experience. So they're they're given all this advice, but they've never actually done anything to. Um, they haven't had the experience to give the advice. That's my opinion. Right now, I'm going to play the devil's advocate. Okay. Okay, since I've I've heard this, this discussion before, is uh, what about Anthony Robbins? He's like a millionaire. What about uh, Tony V or uh, or or Gary V rather? I, I I am not a fan of motivational speakers. Like, in the, I don't even know who these people are. Right. <laughs> I don't know. What about them? Well, who who are, are they? You What's are, their experience? I mean, I, I think, could we say that you're a successful business person? That you are? I would say I'm a business person. And I, I Okay, and I'll say that people would probably um, say that you're a successful business person. Mm-hmm. And there's magazines out there that want to uh, pigeonhole you as a successful business person, right? Yes, yes, they do. <laughs> Okay, so, um, and so in all of your business doings, and you've been in business for how many years? 20 years? 20 years in this business, yes. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then, what, another 10 years in other businesses that you've been in? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and in all of that, you've never heard of Anthony Robbins? Nope. Or Gary V? Nope. Okay. So, you <laughs> Are you trying to say that these guys probably, if they're rich, they probably got rich by giving other people advice on how to get rich? It was a total pyramid scheme. Oh, I'll tell you how to make a million dollars. Fill a room and give me give me a hundred bucks each to listen to me talk. <laughs> how do you think they made their money? Yeah. Come on. 
Now, um, and so are you saying that these people probably fill up a room and then um, say a bunch of positive things? Yes. That will, um, that everyone will They'll all feel resonate good. with? They'll all feel good, but it's not going to help them actually yeah. do anything. All right. Well, thank you for your... Um, <laughs> Thank, th thank you for your, would that be a discussion, a talk, advice, <laughs> opinion? That's my opinion. I, I hate the word opinion. I, I, don't even want, I would say advice because you're someone that actually has done what a lot of people are trying to do, you know, but they, uh, they you know, they're just going in the wrong direction, you know, or they're just being lazy sons of bitches. I think, I think they're being lazy and waiting for someone to do it for them. Yeah. To I mean, the real the real key is you just need to get out there and do it. You yeah. don't need to sit around and listen to someone tell you how to do it. You just need to get out there and do it. And make all the mistakes so you can yes, then you correct have to. those mistakes. Everybody's different. You all have to make your own different set of mistakes and figure out what works for you. Yeah. yeah. Ever consider being a motivational speaker? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. In fact, I've had people ask me if they can be my protégés, and I say no. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm 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 not gonna no. Because you gotta figure it out you yourself. You would you would be scamming them. It's a total it. scam. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> Hi guys, Z here. I thought I'd share an interview of my foster dad, James Randy. He did just recently with Skeptico. It's around forty minutes long, but thanks to Anchor, you can use the play it fast function. For those of you that don't know, James Randi is the world's leading skeptic. He's friends with some of the world's most famous scientists and is in constant contact with some of the world's greatest minds. So I hope you enjoy these up and coming segments and I really would like to hear from you. What are your thoughts on skepticism? Do you consider yourself a skeptic? Thanks for listening. Integrity Radio. On this episode of Skeptico, skeptic James Randi repeats his assertion that all claims of paranormal phenomena that don't pass his million-dollar test are suspect. Why isn't someone like Sheldrake coming after it? No, he stays away from it because, in my estimation, he knows full well that this business of being stared at and or the, the dog that knows its, uh, its owners are coming home, etc., will not pass any test. Now, if it will pass the test, I will give him the million dollars. I will give it to him in the middle of Piccadilly Circus naked. Stay with us for Skeptico. Welcome to Skeptico, where we explore controversial science with leading researchers, thinkers, and their critics. I'm your host, Alex Sikaris, and before we get started with what turned out to be a very lively discussion with skeptic James Randi, I want to take a couple minutes and bring you up to date on some things that are happening here at Skeptico. First, I want to talk to you about the experiment that we're replicating over at Open Source Science the replication of Dr. Rupert Sheldrick's work of dogs that know when their owners are coming home. And you will hear a mention of that experiment on the part of uh, James Randi. I'm not sure that he's totally up to date on 
really where that data or research is, but you'll nevertheless hear his kind of take on it. What I wanted to let you know is there was a little bit of a lull this summer where I really wasn't working on it too much, but I'm back, back on the trail looking for those dogs and uh, have been on a couple of uh, radio interviews trying to reach out to dog owners. And I want to reach out to you skeptical listeners and see if there's anyone out there who is a dog owner and has seen this behavior in their dogs. Or more importantly, if there's anyone out there who's interested in helping me in this effort to uh, find some dogs that know when their owners are coming home. I'd love to get a small group together and try and further that effort. We've had some pretty interesting uh, preliminary results. We've had some great stories of people who have said, yeah, this definitely has happened with uh, our animal uh, or an animal they've had in the past. They've accounted for schedule and things like that. We've even had a couple of people have gone through and done trials and been pretty careful about it and, and have come up with some pretty interesting results. It seems to support the idea that, one, this phenomena is probably really happening, and that, two, it's pretty common, as Sheldrick found out when he did a survey of dog and cat owners. So if you're, if you're out there and you're interested in getting involved in this way, I'd certainly welcome your, your help. Email me. You can go to the Skeptico website, and you'll see my email address. You can drop me a note there. And I think as you listen to this interview, you'll probably come to the same conclusion that I do, and that's that research, like the kind that I'm talking, I've just been talking about, is really the only way we're ever going to know, the only way we're ever going to bridge this gap between skeptics and researchers. So please join me, get involved, let's go after these questions and see where the data leads. Okay, enough about that. Let's go on to my interview with James Randi. today by someone who's been, without question, the single most influential figure within the modern skepticism movement, and someone, no matter how you might feel about him, you have to admire his many accomplishments in unmasking fraud, deception, and in promoting science and reason. James Randi, thank you very much for joining us on Skeptico. It's a great pleasure. You know, before we get, begin today, I know many of your fans are probably interested in your health. In preparing for this interview, I, I saw a video that you recently did for the folks at Google. Mm -hmm. And after the initial shock of seeing how much weight you had lost as a result of your surgery, and I realized within a couple minutes that you still have that wit and you still seem on top of your game. So I assume you're, you're doing well health-wise? Oh, yes. I'm just on, since I finished this interview, I'm on my way over to the gym at the local hospital where I work out three days a week and uh, find it very satisfying and it's bringing me back. Good to hear it. Well, let's start in and talk a little bit about your your work, your life's work. Many, many people know that you started out as a magician. I think many folks maybe don't realize what an accomplished magician you were in your time, very, very famous. And I've also heard you tell the story that 
your interest in skepticism really stemmed from what you saw as charlatans and frauds who were doing the same thing that you were doing and they were calling it something else. Is, is that basically how your interest in skepticism was first spawned? Basically, yes. Even as a little kid, I was always very doubtful of paranormal, religious, and supernatural claims of all kinds. And um, I soon uh, rather firmed up my belief that these things were probably spurious, but I was always, and I still am always, willing to be shown. Uh, as a magician, I was able to see two things very clearly. A, how people can be fooled, and B, how they fool themselves. And the second is far more important than the first. Uh, people have a way of deceiving themselves when they don't see answers that they would like and they prefer those answers. They skew the information they're given willingly uh, in order to arrive at the conclusion they would prefer, whether it's correct or not. And uh, I saw that magicians, uh, all of uh, the magicians, of course, are, but they should be, entertainers, and I certainly was. And I always made it very clear that nothing I was doing, even if I did some mentalism, had any uh, ghost of a chance of being ghostly, so to speak. Uh, it was done by perfectly ordinary means. They were simply not understood at the time by the by the observers. That doesn't mean that they didn't have explanations. The explanations were actually quite simple when revealed, or if revealed. And uh, I, so I knew those two things, how people are fooled and how they fool themselves, and I made sure that I was always very careful to inform my audience that nothing I did had any uh, trace of being anything supernatural or paranormal. And in many cases, I got arguments from people. They'd say, oh, no, you couldn't have done what you just did there on stage uh, without some sort of supernatural help because that's impossible. No, it only appears to be impossible. When you go to see Star Wars, the movie, you suspend your disbelief, and that's what you're supposed to do when you're being entertained. You suspend your disbelief to the point where you can accept what they're doing but realize at the same time that when the lights go up in the theater and you leave, uh, you have to step out onto a street that's real and there's traffic there and you better get that uh, that low tire fixed or it's going to go flat on you. And the mortgage payment, oh, that was supposed to be, yeah, I better get that in the mail fast kind of thing. There is a real world out there and most people aren't aware of it. But as a magician, I'm very well aware that I step from one world to the other very easily, but I know the line that I'm crossing. Right. And, and of course, that's spawned, uh, or at least maybe reinvigorated, a, a tremendous skepticism movement that you've been at the center of. And I can't imagine that you would have ever anticipated just what a movement that would, uh, what that would become. You know, one thing I wanted to touch on that I haven't heard you talk about, but I have heard many of your followers talk about, is just how that realization or that understanding, or really a belief system in skepticism, has been transformative for a lot of people and has changed a lot of people's lives, maybe because they had a, a religious or even a cultish kind of background and they've kind of come through that. Would you like to speak to that at all? Yeah, I, uh, the letters that, uh, that really make it worthwhile uh, to be in existence, uh, as I happen to be at the moment, you may have noticed, um, I... I find that letters that arrive that say, Mr. Randy, at one time I thought you were a terrible person. I, I got your book uh, sometime and I looked through it, or a book on a regular, or whatever book, and I looked through it. Then I went to your webpage, and by golly, I've decided that maybe you are right. I'm going to look into this further. That's all I can ask from anybody, that they take a second look at what their belief system might have been. And uh, they may or may not decide that I have a, a better uh, grasp on reality than the people who are writing the books that say that 
the woo-woo stuff is all correct. So that is very rewarding, and I look forward to those uh, letters and notes. Very good. And, and those would be probably through uh, your organization, JREF, JREF.org, for those of you who uh, want to visit the website. And through JREF.org, James Roundy Educational Foundation, many, many folks know you through the Million Dollar Challenge, of course, which has become somewhat of your uh, your signature venture, if you will. And let's talk about that for a minute because I, I had some, some questions and maybe some problems with that. You know, to me, the Million Dollar Challenge is is great for what it is, and that's a way to expose charlatans, fakers. As I've heard you put it, so you think you can fly? Great. There's a window. I mean, I think that's the perfect um, way to apply that that challenge. What I have a problem with, I think, sometimes is that many skeptics I hear apply this million-dollar challenge as some kind of scientific litmus test that uh, science isn't legitimate unless someone has passed the million-dollar challenge. Uh, what do you what do you think about? Well, claims that uh, that people can do claims by people who say they can do paranormal things or have control of this, that, and the other thing, or uh, know of paranormal powers, uh, can easily, very, very easily be tested by means of the million-dollar prize. Now, that arose many years ago on a radio program out of New York when I was being uh, interviewed, and uh, one of the, uh, it was a parapsychologist who will remain nameless. He's a good friend of mine, actually, but he's totally uh, out of reality in, in every respect. But uh, he is an honest man, and he admits that he's never had a positive experiment in parapsychology, which I find very healthy. It means he's doing, in my estimation, that he's doing his research correctly. However, he challenged me, and he said, why don't you put your money where your mouth is? Well, I very rashly at that point in my career, um, I believe that was 1968, I said, yeah, okay, I'll give $1,000 to any psychic who can do what they say they can do. Now, in 1968, $1,000 was a lot more money than it is now, of course. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, uh, I didn't have any people take me up on it. They all just retreated, and they said, oh, no, uh, it's not a real offer, but I maintained that $1,000 in a special account all the time that I uh, had that offer on hand, and now it's gotten to a point where it's a million dollars. Now, it's not my million dollars. It belongs to the James Randi Educational Foundation, the JREF that you referred to, and uh, it is in a special account with Goldman Sachs, and it's invested, and so it makes us uh, about fifty to sixty thousand dollars a year in income that we can help to run the foundation with. So that's only a very small part of our total budget, but nonetheless, it is there, and it never drops down below a million dollars. And its only purpose is to sit there as a huge carrot to tempt these people who say they have the proof. I just got two calls from people this morning. Uh, who said that they could do this sort of thing, and I simply said, apply. Oh, I don't want to apply. Well, then you don't want the million dollars. Goodbye. We simply ask that they apply. Well, and I understand that. And, and again, I think the way the challenge is set up can be a real service to science in that it filters out the, the, the frauds and the charlatans or the people who are self-deluded. And the, the nature of the challenge being that the proof has to be self-evident to me makes a, a lot of sense. You have to be able to do something, and it has to be, Self-evident. Now, what you said there is self-evident. That's the most important point of this whole thing, Alex. The point is that we don't design the test. We design the test only in conjunction with the person who's making the claim. And if we agree, we both agree on both sides that the test is fair and and uh, 
definitive that it will prove the case one way or the other, at least under these circumstances for this particular purpose, because uh, it can't disprove a whole uh, claim of uh, telepathy or whatever all over the world. But for this particular instance, it may or may not uh, be successful, and uh, it will demonstrate whether on this occasion, at this time, under these circumstances, this person was able to perform as promised. Now, the fact that they designed the test and that we have a mutual agreement in advance that the test is fair doesn't really work out in practice because the minute that they fail, whether it's a dowsing test, a telepathy test, a precognition test, a healing test, whatever it might be, the minute that they fail, though they say in advance that everything is copacetic, it's all correct, it should prove my point, they then say, oh, well, it was Thursday. That's not a good day. I shouldn't have worked on Thursday. Thursday is a very bad day for me. Or the moon was in Sagittarius or whatever. They come up with some sort of excuse immediately following their failure, and they never fail to do this. For that reason, I have an envelope with me at all times uh, listing the person's name and uh, giving it to the, the person who's in charge of the operation because we don't conduct it. We ask it to be done independently so that we can't have any influence on it. Uh, on the result, that is. And I simply give that in advance to the person who's in charge. And after we've finished and they've given their excuses, I ask them to go from the envelope, and it says right there, this person agreed in advance not to offer any alibis or excuses, and it's just done so. So we're, we're prepared in advance for the possibility that uh, people will offer excuses, and, of course, they always right. do. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't doubt that. I don't doubt that for a minute, and one only has to delve into this topic and this, the controversy surrounding parapsychology and other areas of fringe science to see that, that that goes on. But it goes on on both sides, too, of course. I mean, skeptics are, skeptics yeah. are also quick to sometimes interject pretty unbelievable explanations for research that can't be explained by any other means, too. So there's these gaps sometimes, and in, in we should all hesitate to rushing to fill those gaps and should just step back and say, hey, maybe there's more research that needs to be done. And I guess that was my one argument, not with the Randy Challenge, because in the Million Dollar Challenge, I think, it's, I think it serves its purpose very well. I don't like to see it when skeptics apply it as, the, as this litmus test where we can say, oh, gee, there's near-death experience research that's going on in some hospital. Well, I'd like to see them pass the million-dollar challenge. I don't think that's how it's – it's not a litmus test of whether a topic of investigation is legitimate for science or not. Well, in most cases, the scientists won't come anywhere near me or the offer anyway because they say, oh, James Randi is not a scientist. Uh, yeah, but I can tie my own shoes, and I know how to vote. If I can figure out how to operate the machine, I, I think maybe I should qualify for some sort of consideration. I'm not stupid. I'm not uh, totally bereft of reason. Uh, all I do is they say, hey, I know as much as I know under the circumstances that I will describe. I don't claim anything more than that, and I don't claim to be infallible. You are the people who will judge this thing. The, uh, the answer must, as you mentioned earlier there, it must be self-evident so we don't have to make any decisions on the thing. You know, if you can fly, you can fly. Step over to the window. Boom. Now I know whether or not you can fly under these circumstances and this particular occasion, uh, etc. So uh, we're, we're very upfront with this thing. And, of course, the big excuse that uh, is offered to us, oh, there's no million dollars. There never right. was a million dollars. Well, it's the Goldman Sachs. All they have to do is communicate by telephone, by fax, telepathy, tarot cards, whatever means they want to communicate with us, and we will send them the documentation. 
Now, it's been sent out many, many, well, not many times, a good half yeah. dozen times, I guess, in the past couple of years, and people just say, no, that's a forged document. Well, call Goldman Sachs and find out, because they will happily answer you that that account number is genuine and that there is at least a billion dollars in the account at all times. But these are the excuses these people give because they have to have an out. When people say, they, when the media say particularly, why won't you take the challenge, they don't have an answer. <laughs> So you look at Sylvia Brown. Her excuse was, was very upfront. She said, I don't know how to reach James <laughs> Randi. Duh. You know, she talks to dead people, and right. I'm very much alive. <laughs> you may have noticed. And then the phone book, Sylvia, but she said she didn't know how to reach me. Now she says she doesn't want to reach me because well, I'm not a godly person. Well, wouldn't that be all the more reason to take the million dollar prize? I think one of the strengths of your message all along has been this common sense approach that you take. And I think it does a great service to, to science and people who want to kind of turn science into this uh, very complicated, oh, you just, if you could only understand uh, kind of message. And I think your common sense approach has worked throughout uh, throughout your long career in terms of exposing that we can understand this and, and we can get a grasp on these topics. I do think I do think that comes around the other side of that, too, and that sometimes skeptics can take and make things more complicated than they need to be. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to talk with a very nice gentleman named Tom Clark, who uh, just wrote a book on naturalism and runs a website on naturalism, and he's a, he's a skeptical guy, obviously. And we went into this whole thing on free will, and I, I've talked to now several folks on this. And it seems like, again, from a common-sense approach, it's such a silly notion. Of course we have free will. Of course I'm deciding the next word that comes out of my mouth. But in the same way that uh, parapsychology researchers can turn things into some kind of complicated mess that doesn't make any sense. I think skeptics can sometimes do that, too, when they have a belief. For example, free will just isn't consistent with this notion that everything that's going on in our, in our mind is purely a function of our brain. So we have to invent this kind of complicated idea of there being no contracausal free will. Do you have any? Well, I, I disagree with that to, to a considerable extent. Uh, after all, we are the product of our of our training, of our background, of our DNA patterns and whatnot. So a lot of what we decide and what we do is not necessarily free. It's, it's oh, absolutely. Not the kind of thing that we can make a decision on uh, without influences coming into it. After all, uh, we have all kinds of uh, of, uh, of course things driving us, all kinds of uh, uh, a background driving us, and. Uh, can you imagine a Republican saying anything sensible, for example? He probably would be. Uh, but, but you just withdrew that. Was that your free will to withdraw that, or were you programmed to withdraw that by your, uh, by your, all your prior experiences and your, your, your mother's uh, uh, weaning you? I mean, but, uh, a lot is of it. All, but the question is, and it's when we get into absolutes, I mean, the position that, that Tom Clark takes and, and many scientists take in this area is that there is absolutely no free will at all, that, that none of the decisions you make are, are really your own. Well, they are to a certain extent within a, a small spectrum uh, of immediate experience and whether or not you're going to put one foot in front of the other. That is the decision that you make freely. Now, mind you, if a, if a car is coming, uh, you can continue to make that decision freely and get run down which not, would not be wise, and something is going to interfere, one would hope, in order to uh, spare you the indignity and the, uh, the, the fatal accident. 
Uh, so it's within a certain spectrum. Yes, we have free will within I, limited circumstances. I, I would agree, and, uh, I, and I think that, that that's how we, we uh, that's how we experience life. And I think for the most part, again, back to your common sense approach, I think most of the things that that we experience and that we see other people experience widely uh, across cultures, across time, I think is a good indication that those are are for the most part real phenomena that we can look at. And, and that would lead me to, I guess, another point where the common sense kind of approach breaks down. And that's that I, I see some of the research that's been done in, in near-death experience. Now, I have no idea what goes on with the near-death experience as it's researched in real places and hospitals when someone has a, a cardiac arrest, which is a procedure you were cl- <laughs> very close to, I'm sure, if you didn't at the time of your surgery, you were in the ward where other people were having that. And as you know, when the heart stops within 11 seconds, the brain is is dead. So now we have these people that have these experiences, no matter what we make of them, how we decide. But yet, when we hear skeptics talk, they want to interject all this kind of wild ideas about what could be going on because they're uncomfortable with that gap that we have that we really can't explain how someone could have that experience in that 11 seconds. Well, no, we, and I wouldn't say we can't explain it. I mean, we don't have an explanation Good, good point. I would agree. Right. Can't be explained. Because I, I think it can be explained. We know that the, how the brain relaxes, how the neurons uh, begin to lose their charge and whatnot. And uh, some of it, uh, I went underwent uh, a lot of anesthesia when I had my uh, heart uh, bypass. And... Uh, it was a very serious operation, and I came very close to cashing in. I hallucinated a lot, and I remember those hallucinations very well, but they were hallucinations. I was not asleep in King Tut's tomb while I was uh, uh, under anesthesia, but I believed that I was. Right. I, I thoroughly believed I hallucinated very strongly that I was. Now, I don't believe that I had anything to do with King Tut. I never knew the man, I swear. I'm old, but I'm not quite that old. The point is that I believed it for the moment because I was hallucinating. That doesn't mean that it's real and that it actually happened. And uh, people don't seem to have much of a, a, a good common sense when they start to, to estimate whether or not something really happens. You go to see a David Copperfield or a Penn and Teller or Lance Burton or any of the great magicians, and you see them do things on that stage which are impossible to do if the representation of everything you see there is correct. And you look at it and you say, well, I saw it with my own eyes. Another statement which is nonsensical, who else's eyes would you have seen it with? So the fact that you see it yourself with your own sensory uh, apparatus doesn't mean that it's necessarily real, because that apparatus can deceive you. And we magicians know that, and we use the fact that you can be deceived and that you can deceive yourself. Of course. Of course. And I think my real point there was that when we have these gaps that we both acknowledge in, in this case, or I don't know, I don't want to say that you acknowledged it, but we really have no way of explaining in, in modern neurological terms how this complex brain functioning that goes on during a near-death experience could possibly be happening happening with a brain that's shutting down, as we said, in that very brief ter- period that we have. So without interjecting anything in there in terms of what's happening, we just have a, a, a very big question that doesn't fit into our existing model of how those things work. Okay. Perfectly. Right. Uh, next week we may have a different explanation for it, and uh, I look forward to that. At one time we experienced the fact that radioactivity existed. Wow, film sealed up in light-tight envelopes. 
was actually fogged when it was left aside this piece of pitch blend. That's impossible. But no, it was discovered that, uh, that the pitch blend does give out the emanations that do pay, pass through this uh, black paper and such, and they fogged the film. Said, wow, what, that's a discovery. Now, that doesn't mean that it's supernatural. It just means, for the moment, it may look to be supernatural. But as soon as we have an explanation for it, we're able to codify it and, and formulate it. Then it, it leaves it's the same way with parapsychology, parapsychological uh, events, if they ever took place. And I've never seen any evidence of them. That doesn't mean they don't take place. I'm really said I've never seen any evidence, and I've looked assiduously over all these years. The minute that they would be recognized, they would not be parapsychological anymore. They would be part of the real world, and we would understand them. I, I agree, and, and you know that kind of brings up two points that I wanted to talk about in, in the time that we have, and, and I realize your time is very limited today. But first of all, it brings up the issue of debunking. And I think I wrote you this in the email. I mean, what the heck is wrong with debunking? I keep hearing so many skeptics, yourself included, saying we're not debunkers, we're not debunkers. Since when did debunking become a, a, a curse word? And I think it's a wonderful well, contribution to say, here is something that's, that's bunk, and I've exposed it. Well, let me explain. Uh, what that's all about. If, if, if I say I'm a debunker or admit that I'm a debunker, it means that I already have an attitude that says this is not so and I'm going to prove it to be not so. I can't afford that. All I can say about anything, whether it's a claim of being able to fly or read minds or whatever, is I don't know. I'll find out. So that's investigation. That's not debunking. Debunking means a preconceived uh, attitude yeah, and approach but, to say this yeah, is not, not so. Really, you know, one of the things I've discovered on this show, and I learned it uh, through an encounter I had with uh, a gentleman I think you, you know and respect, Dr. Richard Wiseman, and uh, his work yeah. with uh, Dr. Rupert Sheldrick, and that's that really there's this collaborative research that folks can do and there's debunking, but there isn't a lot in between. And this idea of an investigation that isn't a truly collaborative project, I don't, I don't think works. You know, so when I talked to Richard Wiseman, and, I, and he was nice enough to do this interview, as was Sheldrick, you know, two things come up. First, he reveals that even though he's battled with Sheldrick for 10 years in this raging debate, he now has to admit that, yeah, the data he collected in this experiment does match Sheldrick's. And then secondly, he says, you know, probably the reason why we battled with this so much is that I came in basically as a debunker and he was doing this long-term research. And I don't think he said that. And I didn't take it that it was a slight. It was just the reality of the situation. A media outlet had come in and said, hey, here's this guy who says these dogs know when their owners can come in. Go look at it. And he came in and, and was looking to kind of debunk that, that claim. And here's a guy, Richard Wiseman, again, who's done collaborative research with uh, paranormal researchers. So he knows what that's like. I mean, isn't that where we really have to get? I mean, truly collaborative research? Well, the, the point is that you can't, uh, at least I can't, afford to approach something with the attitude of the debunker. What I do ends up being debunking, but not until it has been shown not to exist. And in many cases, we can show that the power that the person claims, the ability they claim, does not exist. And we're willing to have them come back any number of times to prove that or to establish it or to test it, whatever they want to, to designate it as. Uh, I don't approach the thing as a debunker. I approach it as an investigator. I think it's the attitude with which you approach approach it that is. Oh, important. maybe it's maybe it's just a matter of semantics. You know, I, I did want to since I just brought up 
Dr. Rupert Sheldrick, and I was really quite surprised when I did this research uh, to see that you had actually named him, uh, awarded him dubiously with your Pegasus Award last year, and the reason being that you gave that his uh, his research, his sample size was too small, and that he had not uh, published that particular research that uh, that was in question, both of which I don't think are exactly accurate. But the real question I had is, why? Why someone like Sheldrick? I mean, with all the con artists and mail-order PhDs out there, why pick on a guy that has all the right credentials, has an excellent reputation, has never been called... He has the credentials, but he doesn't have the ability, Alex. That's the point. He, he, he fails grandly when he actually gets around to doing these things. Now, uh, I offered to test the dog, for example, that could tell when people were coming home. I was turned down. I was told, no, you can't come anywhere Weisman, near the dog. But uh, wait a minute. Wiseman tested the dog. Yes. But so, so I mean, isn't uh, did Wiseman do a poor job of testing the dog? Is that what you're... No, Wiseman didn't have the million dollars. I offered him the million dollars if he'd allow me to test the dog, and he said but, but, no. But what is and that? They, the, the owners why, of the dog. Hold on. Not. I mean, that's back to what we're talking about, that, that we can't use the, I don't think, the million dollars can be used as some litmus test if some Somebody takes it or doesn't take it. Here you have a very competent guy that we both agree, Richard Wiseman. He's doing a truly he's a researcher trained in that. Isn't that what isn't that the situation where we really want where there's two people who really know what they're doing, who are collaborating, trying to find out the scientific truth? Why would you not be why would that not be superior to an experiment? Oh, it is. It is admitted. I, I, I never denied that. The point is that Sheldrake has now shut me off entirely. He won't respond to anything that I that I send to him. Any inquiries? He won't. Re, he won't uh, react to any of it. He has the opportunity to make a million dollars if he shows that people being stared at or dogs that know their their owners are coming home actually works. That's an open I understand. Offer. It's right there. The money is on the table, and he has refused to have anything to do with it. Now, there's got to be a good reason for that. He's not required to no, take the there, challenge. There no, has to no be, one's required there, to take it. There can be a number of reasons for that. I just don't know why you would. Give me one. First of all, I can't see how any uh, psychological discovery that we've had in the last 100 years could withstand the, the Randy Million Dollar Challenge because there's... Of course it could. What, tell me something that's self-evident that's been discovered in, in psychology in the last 100 years. Okay. You poke a pin into somebody and they jump. It hurts. That's not psychology. Hey, I can test that. That's not psychology. Tell me. Tell me. I mean... But physiology, okay. But, so I'm saying, as these... There's other... Give me something that can't be tested. I think I, I turn it around and say, I look at... You know, and I, and I in preparation for this, I said... Because I thought of that and I go, is that really true? And I looked up a list of the of the what some people call the greatest accomplishments in psychology in the last hundred years. And you have B.F. Skinner and you have some of the personality stuff and the memory stuff. And I realized none of this stuff is self-evident. I mean, and that's the real, again, I, I think I think maybe now I'm seeing that, that you really do think that the million dollars is a litmus test. I mean, I think it's great for someone who thinks they can fly, like you said, but I can see. I got two choices. I can see. A, I got two choices. I can offer the million dollars, or I can not offer the million dollars. I was challenged to offer a prize. I've offered the prize. Why isn't someone like Sheldrake coming after it? No, he stays away from it because, in my estimation, he knows full well that this business of being stared at and or the the dog that knows its uh, its owners are coming home, etc., will not pass 
any test. Now, if it will pass the test, I will give him the million dollars. I will give it to him in the middle of Piccadilly Circus, naked. <laughs> well, I, I, I now, don't that, know. That's a public offer. I will do that. I don't know if that would. If Sheldrake succeeds. I don't know if that would increase the chances or decreases the chances that he would. But what, what can I do then? But hold it. You know, I'm offering a million bucks. No, my just what? not my million bucks. It belongs to the foundation. But I'm offering a million dollars and to give it away stark naked. <laughs> What else do you want me to do? Do you want me to kill my firstborn for him? No, no, I don't. The, the point that I was making, and I mean, you're you're very, very accomplished guy, and, and and have that stage presence, and are able to kind of make your points. But the, 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 we're kind of dancing around the real issue that I think you agreed with is that if there's a guy out there like Rupert Sheldrick who does have the, the credentials and the reputation, no matter what you might think about it, I mean, in a generally kind of common sense accepted way, yeah, he. He meets the, the requirements. If he chooses to do his research with Richard Wiseman or with uh, Chris French, another uh, skeptical yeah. uh, researcher mm -hmm. in the UK, I, I don't understand why you wouldn't be why you wouldn't be cheering that on. Why that isn't the ultimate? Oh, why isn't that the ultimate goal? Why why would we pick this guy out as someone who we we have to deride? I mean. What we really want, what I really want, is the answer. I want to know the truth. And it seems to me the truth is done by really getting down and doing the research, not by saying, oh, we Absolutely. already know it's not true. Agreed. Agreed. That's true. And I'm the clown with a red nose running into the middle of it saying, hey, if you can do that for me, I'll give you a million dollars. Toot, toot. Yeah. Where is Sheldrake? Isn't that, doesn't there have to be a reason for Sheldrake not taking us up on this offer? Think about that now. Yes. There's got to be a reason that he won't take us up on the offer. I, I, I think I think we're going over the, the same ground. I think he can have any number of reasons for, for not for not doing that. And, and as we talked about... So, I'd like to know one. I, Just one. Uno. Eins. Aaron. As I, as I explained, I, I don't think that, that the, the rule of self-evidence really might fit for explaining any kind of phenomena, be them psychological or parapsychology. But I, well, I, I, I know I, that's okay that you disagree with that. I, I think it's, I think it's unfortunate, you know, when, when you said the, the clown running around with the nose, I think it threw clearly to anyone who's looked at your work that, that you have sought to draw attention to this in a way that for the most part is positive because it brings science, it brings reason, it brings common sense to the forefront and it makes people think about it. And we need people who, I don't know if I'd say it the same way in terms of a clown running around with a nose, but we need a little bit of that provocateur. I have a problem when it has a counterproductive end and that's that it stifles research. And, you know, if, if we really look at these topics and we look at who's going to decide what research gets done, if we ask the public they want this research done, why I think we need to be more embracing, more encouraging, and, and more um, cultivating this kind of research so we can get these real answers, because we're never going to get it if we're just polarized on, on either side of these uh, controversial subjects. Well, I think that a million dollars is really encouraging. And that would encourage me to do wonders. I'd turn handsprings, again, naked in, in, in a public place if you want, uh, if I could earn the million dollars. That's a big carrot, and it's very encouraging. Now, Wiseman himself could do the, uh, the, the research, or Chris French could do the research with Sheldrake, with the million-dollar prize, 
uh, being held. It's right there. As soon as you succeed in this experiment, bang, there's the million dollars. So it, it wouldn't be me doing the test. It would be someone like Chris French or Wiseman or some other scientist uh, with the proper credentials. Credentials could do this sort of thing. And we always, always have it out of house. We don't do the test ourselves. We always turn it over to a lab or to a to a, uh, an association, an organization, a college, whatever, who will do the experimentation, do the, uh, the the whole run on the thing, and announce the results at the end of it. That's the way we have, uh, have staged the, uh, the million-dollar challenge, and it will always be that way. We will not interfere with it ourselves personally, and if they don't want me to be there, I won't be there. When they did the homeopathy test for the BBC some years ago, they said, well, we'll keep you informed. I said, no, don't keep me informed, because the homeopaths say that I put out negative vibrations that will interfere with the success of the test. So just don't tell me when the test is taking place. <laughs> Only call me after the test has taken place. And they did exactly that. And the homeopath failed miserably, dramatically. Right, right. Well, I tell you what, we are we are in the process now of looking for dog candidates to repeat that experiment, and we do and definitely plan on engaging uh, skeptics as well as believers in that. So I will keep you informed if and when we are ever ready to uh, to take the challenge with the with the one caveat that we require that the close be on when the check is presented but uh, well i've been a year and a half uh, in a negotiation with the homeopaths to do a test in greece now and uh, they still haven't uh, come to a conclusion as to where they're going to do it and how they're going to do it a year and a half a year and a half of emails and letters being fired back and forth between here and greece to try to get the homeopaths to get off the the, the button the stop button that they're sitting on right there let's do the tests and let's see what happens with the billion dollars these people are just so slow, they drag and they drag, and I think I know the reason, that they know that the experiment will not succeed and they want to avoid it so they can carry on in the way that they always have, scamming people that what they do is the real thing. Well, there, there we have it. There is the voice of James Randi, loud and clear, that we've heard so many years. Thank you very much for your time. I, I know we said we'd try and keep this to 30 minutes. We've run a little bit over, but I appreciate very much your work, and I appreciate you joining us today. Any uh, last thoughts on things that are maybe coming up at JREF that you want folks to know about? Look at our webpage, www.randy.org, and it's all there. We keep everybody uh, fully informed. And I'm off to Alaska at the end of the week, and uh, oh, not much for the rest of the year. Some lectures and a few things like that, but it's all on our webpage. Very good. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. I'd like to thank Randy again for joining me today. He's a very busy guy, as you can imagine, gets a lot of requests for interviews like this. It was great for him to come on the show and great for him to participate in a dialogue like the kind that we have here on Skeptico.com. So thanks for joining us. We have some interesting interviews coming up, so stay with us for that. And in the meantime, be sure to check out the Skeptico website for archives of our old shows and to participate in our forums. And you'll also find there a way to contact me, either by email or leaving me a voicemail. So please take advantage of that. Thanks for listening, and bye for now. That was a long one. Hey, listen, if you actually listen to that whole 40-minute segment, I really would like to hear from you.
I don't care if you agree or disagree. I just mostly would like to hear your thoughts. As always, thanks for listening. Integrity Radio. Hey Z, this is about your fact versus theory uh, question, and I'll address it in two parts. So first of all, you said that you'd love to be proved wrong, but again, I do have to reiterate that I don't see these as situations where I have to prove you wrong. Or but hey, I'm just a normal kid, like you, except that I ask questions. And because I'm brave enough to ask questions, I'm asking questions! Will somebody shut him up? Vice versa, I don't see it as a debate. I don't see myself as having any sort of ideological belief that I need to uphold or an agenda. I don't have an opinion on what a theory is. I've never really uh, thought about a definition of theory. But you say that Richard Dawkins says that a theory is a fact, and I'm not sure if he did say that, but I'm going to take your word for it. The word theory can be used to mean something speculative and tentative. In everyday speech, it probably usually is used in that sense. Scientists very often use it in a much more positive sense. I think the easiest way is to use the ordinary language word fact. If he did, then I'm not sure I agree with that, because to me a theory is a hypothesis. Because to me a theory is a hypothesis. Because to me a theory is a hypothesis. It's an idea that still requires evidence or proof before it can be described as a fact. And it might link certain facts wow, to... cool! Wait a minute! The fuck? It's an idea that still requires evidence or proof before it can be described as a fact. And it might link certain facts together into some kind of narrative, but I think that a theory requires something more for it to pass from being a theory to being a fact. And next on to facts. If you're going to get sophisticated and philosophical, no doubt it's only a theory that that's a table. Yeah, yeah. Um, and exactly. and uh, that there are sense data pouring in which, which uh, so far have failed to falsify the hypothesis that that's a table. ...does depend on the framework, or rather, not what is the case, because we can never actually say what is the case. Wow, cool, wait a minute. The fuck? But rather, how we explain what is the case. So I think that our explanations of a fact, or our description of a fact, or our way of framing a fact depends from our very human, uh, mammal-centric uh, view of the world. Alternative facts to that, but the point remains Alternative facts? So that doesn't mean that before humans existed, there couldn't be H2O, there was no such thing as water. It just means that the way we describe water as a fact, H2O, this depends on our human way of looking at the world. Even the fact that we have a numeric value there, that is an inherently human thing. So yes, there are facts, but how we describe them depends. Wow, cool, wait a minute. The, 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 the.